Hey, hot cakes. Welcome to Hot Take, the podcast where we talk about the climate crisis and all the ways we're talking and not talking about it. I'm Amy Westervelt. And I'm Mariana Ease Heckler. And this episode, we're going to talk about some of the parts of the climate crisis that we don't talk about that much, at least not here. It's kind of like the hidden cost of climate change. You know, the extreme weather that's happening in the global south and how that's leading to this huge migration crisis and how we're not really talking about it that way. And the huge toll that it takes on environmental activists in the global south and how that sort of apathy that we in the West, in particular the United States, have shown to the rest of the world, how it's kind of turning on us now and all that's at stake in this election. Um, And we're sitting down with a perfect guests for this conversation. That's right. We got to talk to Rachel Ramirez this week. She is a writer for Grist. Her beat is environmental justice. And she grew up in the Marianas Islands and talked Mm -hmm. to us. And she's Filipina. And she's Filipina, right. So she talked to us about, you know, what it was like to live through storms there that weren't getting coverage and what it was like to Mm -hmm. be here when Superstorm U2 hit and, you know, she wasn't able to get news coverage about it or to reach her family, um, all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, she's got a a bird's eye view. It's a handful of countries that Uh, get the coverage and it's the vast majority of the world that just gets ignored yeah so yeah no this was a really interesting and important conversation i felt like we should have before the election this is our last Mm -hmm. episode before the election and we'll be getting back together uh just to vent and (laughs) uh talk through whatever happens on on november 4th yeah which is my birthday so send me chocolate it's like it's seven days away and it feels like um, a, a like freaking parallel universe that we can't it see. It does. It does. Like I can't imagine the world afterwards. So, yeah, know, that'll I be know. interesting. Um, yeah. So if yes. you want links to the articles that we discuss in the show, make sure that you sign up for our newsletter. That's right. Um, we'll have some more information about how to do that at the end of this episode and in the show notes. And also make sure that you go and leave us a rating or review on iTunes. Um, again, we have a different um, system for people to leave negative feedback. Um, right. We'll talk more about right. that at the end of the show as well. And right. with that, it's time to talk about climate. Hi, Rachel. Thanks for doing this. We, we appreciate you joining us today. Yes, thank you for having me. So first things first, question we ask everybody, how did you get into journalism and specifically into climate journalism? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's a long story, but um, I actually we got, got time. <laughs> I actually got into journalism because of a significant climate disaster that mm. um, happened in my hometown. So I'm for, for those who don't know, I was born and raised in Saipan, Northern Mariana Islands. It's a U.S. territory just north of Guam. Um, and if you don't know where Guam is, I guess just pull up a Google Maps. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I guess, the, you know, the summer of 2015, I was an incoming sophomore. I went to the University of Portland and that summer I visited my hometown and went back home, visited my family, my friends, and then back to Portland because I was starting college, college again, second year of college. And a couple of days after I came back, um, uh, I think three days after I came back, a, a super typhoon was literally barreling down my um, 
the Marianas and you know, the, it was super typhoon pseudolore. It was a category five and it was really destructive. And, you know, my parents call me every day. Um, and I, I guess when the power went off in Saipan or across the island, um, I was really worried and I, you know, refreshing my um, Facebook feed, my Twitter feed, mm-hmm. all my social media, trying to get updates. And, you know, my, my mom and my dad, are my dad are there, my sister's there, my friends are, were there, but I wasn't getting, you know, the updates that I needed. And, you know, I just left mm-hmm. and I was in Portland and, um, you know, I, I think my first sort of instinct when something like this happens is to write and to, yeah, you know, after, after writing, um, I guess multiple Facebook statuses of like, and sharing things, um, of what's happening and you know there was a lack of coverage too of what's happening mm-hmm. um not even lack I guess there was zero besides the yeah. local newspapers in Guam so I wrote this you know super like amateur I guess article CNN had this I report submission I don't know if you you both remember that but I, th- I don't think they have it anymore but um, you sort of hmm. submit an article and you get this URL that you can share in your social media, um, but it's not, you know, published. It's kind of, it's kind of like a citizen journalism tip, hmm. I don't know, submission type thing. But I did that. And then I got the URL, um, shared it on Facebook. And then once the power went back on in the islands, like it was widely shared. And mm-hmm. um, I was like, oh, my God, I think this is what I wanted to do. Have you seen things in the way that it's discussed that you would... Um, that you would change or that you want to kind of focus on trying to change yourself? Yeah, so I've, you know, I've been, I've actually been talking to, I've been invited to talk to grad students at NYU and CUNY um, in the last couple of weeks. And Mm -hmm. one thing that I kept telling them is that, you know, if you're going to be a climate journalist, you have to step outside of, you know, the bubble and remember that, climate justice or climate change really intersects with a plethora of issues such as, you know, housing justice, economic justice, racial justice, immigration, et cetera. Yeah. And I guess, you know, this is more for journalists and, you know, we all know in our circle, we know this and my, you know, my partner probably thinks I'm a broken record after hearing this a few times. But, mm-hmm. you know, I could not emphasize it enough is that, you know, if you don't think a news story is a climate story, I think again, it's, and that's something that I told them a lot. And, you know, if you don't think COVID mm-hmm. is a climate story, you know, think again. If you don't think immigration is a climate story, think again. Yeah. And I yeah. think that's, that's one thing that I would change in the way we discuss climate. I mean, as climate journalist, you know, as in the work that we do in our space, we know this, but I think in the overall sort of climate discourse and discussion, yeah. I feel like that's something that. Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't realize. Yeah. 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 It's interesting, right? Because we've turned COVID into an everything story, right? Like you wouldn't write about like this year's baseball season without talking about how it intersects with COVID. And you shouldn't write about it without talking about how it intersects with climate either, right? Like it's hotter out there. Um, so, yeah. Um, and on that note, are there any interesting themes that you've noticed? Um, like, I feel like the climate conversation has changed dramatically in the past two years um, and it's changing just all the time. So are there any like encouraging in particular themes that you've noticed in the way that we're talking about climate change now? Yeah, I definitely think environmental justice is coming into the spotlight more now, mm-hmm. especially in the larger picture. 
again, I think for us, it's something, you know, we've sort of been writing and talking about for a long time and for a while now, but I think for other folks outside of climate Twitter or the climate space, I feel like, you know, they think that environmental justice is just about, and I think I tweeted this actually, vulnerable communities getting hit the hardest from storms yeah. and wildfires. But, you know, we, we know that, that it's bigger than that. It's about um, the military poisoning the Pacific. It's about, it's about formerly redlined communities suffering the most from extreme heat. It's, you know, deeper than that. And I think now the narrative has shifted to, oh, it's black and brown communities intentionally and disproportionately located next to um, polluting infrastructure, the fossil fuel industry. And we we saw that come up for the first time, at least in my lifetime on the debate stage when, last week when Kristen Welker asked the candidates about that very question. And, you know, I remember jumping on my couch and screaming when I heard that. But, you know, <laughs> it's more interesting because it's like, why now, right? When environmental justice has been a term and an issue around that's been around for decades since like right. the 70s. So, yeah, I think I know it's it's my beat, but like I, I really do think that environmental justice is a theme that's sort of emerging now. Yeah. I mean, that wasn't the first time in your lifetime. That was the first time ever. Because um, yeah. we before this election cycle, the discussion of climate change in any presidential or vice presidential forum was total 10 minutes. Well, and certainly no one ever asked about environmental justice. Definitely. Absolutely not. I mean, something yeah, so powerful yeah. that it's a woman of color who asked it. Too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she I she left a lot to be desired in terms of pushing back on a lot of the the nonsense, though. Do you mean the I'm the least racist person in this room comment, Mary? Uh, I mean that. I mean so much shit, Amy. So much shit. I know. I know. So. Yeah. But no, it was cool that she in particular asked that question and that, you know, um, I mean, I'm sure it's like the first time several people watching thought about that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? So. But yeah, I don't know why it's it's emerging now and not, you know, like. 15, 20, 30 years ago. I think the, you know, the discussion I feel like started to when um, during the No Dapple protest, but then mm-hmm. it kind of dwindled down again, and then the youth climate movement came up, and then, yeah, and then now it's coming up again while, you know, as the country. That's um, true. This racial reckoning. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And I do think the youth climate movement is way, way better at just like coming at it from an EJ lens from the jump. Like they're not, they didn't have to be told that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, Okay. So uh, what, what are you reading these days? Do you, um, are there particular newsletters that you read? We know you have one too. Um, (laughs) Or, uh, you know, like particular writers that you follow or a book that you read recently. Or outlets. Great on climate. Yeah, I I mean, you know, just this week, just yesterday, I feel like there was a bunch of environmental stories that were published and really great investigation, uh, investigation pieces. Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, read both of you and (laughs) listen. (laughs) But um, I think there's there's a lot of journalists, and I don't think I can list most all of them. And, you know, I tweeted a bunch of articles yesterday as well, but right now and recently, 
I would, you know, I rec I recommend reading, and I wrote about this, the book Poisoning the Pacific, which just which just came out um, hmm. this month, and I wrote about it in the Guardian, and it basically explores um, and highlights how the U.S. military covered up um, um, years of contamination and um, and and this environmental destruction in, in the Pacific of indigenous lands and in, in, across the Marianas and in, in Marshall Islands and um, Hawaii and Okinawa and Japan and just, you know, just burying barrels of toxic chemicals and just, you know, all these things that's literally poisoning the Pacific and that that's um, that's a title. So yeah, it's I, I read that and I was just shocked and I, I really highly recommend people read that and it's Poisoning the Pacific by John Mitchell. Um, mm -hmm. And then right now I actually have a book with me called um, and I'm, I've been referencing it in some of my stories called Disposable City by Mario mm -hmm. Alejandro Ariza. Um, I'm probably butchering his name. I'm sorry, but um, it's about Miami's future on the shores of climate catastrophe. So um, yeah, I guess those are the two books that I've been reading kind of going back to. I love it. Nobody ever gives us book recommendations. So that is awesome. I huh? know. I love that. <laughs> yes. Totally. I, I started <laughs> this year tracking um, my the books that I read. So I, I, I log it down in my Goodreads. And so... Oh. I'm on track to do like three thirty books, hopefully by the end of the year. <laughs> That's awesome. You're writing a lot. Um, sounds like it's kind of like your your safe place, um, as it is for me and Amy. So this lightning round is about writing. Um, so it should be like right up your alley. Rachel, what do you call a writer who doesn't follow the rules of sentence structure? Oh my God, a journalist. I don't know. <laughs> a rebel without a clause. <laughs> you you'll get some. Don't worry. What did the writer who became a baker become known for? Uh, yeah, I have no idea. Um, I have no smart answer. You can also ask Amy <laughs> for help because she should know these two. God, I'm terrible at these. Mm -hmm. Mary loves to tell people to ask me for help because I'm even worse at them than everybody else. <laughs> kind of. Kind of. Mary did this. This was Mary's idea. Yeah. This Mary's yeah. Idea. yeah. This is what we call uh, the Thunderdome. <laughs> Can you repeat the question, Mary? What did the writer who became a baker become known for? Okay. No. It's her synonym oh. roles. Oh, God. Oh, my God. I never would have gotten that. Rachel, the real reason we want to have you on the show is because we wanted to talk about the parts of the climate crisis that we often don't talk about um, here in the United States because they don't happen here. They happen below the equator generally. 
Um, and I wanted to start off by having you read from a piece that you wrote last year in Gris. A year ago, this island was hit with the worst sea storm since 1935. What happened next? Super Typhoon Yi made history as the worst storm to hit United States soil since 1935. The Category 5 storm wreaked havoc on the islands of Saipan and Tinian, which are part of the U.S. Commonwealth of the Northern Mariana Islands. The storm left thousands of residents without homes. For weeks, fallen power poles and palm trees blocked main roads, while tin roofing and debris blanketed the ground. Saipan International Airport canceled all flights for about a month. South Korea deployed military jets to re rescue tourists trapped on the decimated island. Hurricane Maria made headlines two years ago when it pummeled Puerto Rico, another U.S. territory. But many mainland Americans didn't hear much about Super Typhoon U2. That's not only because of the scarce media attention, but also because the islands are largely missing from U.S. history textbooks. Now a year has gone by since U2 battered the Northern Marianas, and residents are still reeling, waiting for government funding, watching warily as another storm season passes and wondering when things will get back to normal. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And yeah, you know, I don't, we like, we talked about this a little bit about just how little coverage there was yeah. of this storm when it happened, but I don't think I even realized that the airport was shut down for a month. That's crazy. Yeah. That's nuts. Yeah. Yeah. So what's happening there? What's happening there now? How's it? Cause I know like with Maria too, it's still, you know, there's, they're waiting for things and yeah, I mean, uh... COVID also compounded with the lack of tourists um, and driving the economy. So the island is also suffering yeah. from that. Yeah. Um, there's the lot. So I visited in 2019 mm -hmm. last year, summer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I'm pretty sure this is still true today, but um, there are still sort of ground refugee like tents right. from FEMA. Right. Um, yeah, those tents still exist today because um, a lot of the homes are still, you know, really destroyed. So I think most people are still have the tents, but I think a lot of people have also moved on to, um, I guess, apartments or other homes. And I know a lot of people have also moved on to the mainland. And, um, you know, now that even personally, my now that my sister um, is in college in California, my parents are sort of tired of um, dealing with sort of the economy and also the storms that keep battering the island. And my parents are planning to move to the mainland soon, possibly next year. It was supposed to be this year, but the pandemic happened. So it, it's it, it's had an impact and a lot of people's lives changed since then. Right. It's really sad how little coverage a storm like this got. And it's also that it won't be the last. It hasn't been the last. And every single and like the trauma that comes from something like that, which is another thing that I really appreciated about your article is a year after it actually happened. Um, and so you get to see what the scars look like a year later. And it's just something that people don't people in the United States on the mainland are not really thinking about and how the lack of coverage can lead to a lack of um, response, a lack of donations, a lack of just like even awareness that this happened. Yeah. So there's actually an article that 
also was published. I think it was for it was last month or this month um, in Harper's Magazine, um, hmm. where the article spotlights Super Typhoon U two in Saipan. The writer, um, her name I think was Sierra Murdoch, and she is not from Saipan whatsoever, but she writes a lot about an, an indigenous communities. And I think she spent some time in Saipan getting to know the community. And I think she really did a great job of sort of telling their stories and in a very, um, you know, narrative and visceral way. And it essentially explores what, you know, when when is it time to abandon the place to climate change? Mm -hmm. And um, I don't know, that story, you know, gave me chills because a lot of people, she spotlighted this family who, you know, after waiting for, I guess, a month for um, FEMA to inspect their homes because it was totally like flattened and destroyed by U2, um, they sort of this ultimately decided to, you know, uproot their lives and move to Seattle where some of their relatives are. And so that idea of like starting from scratch again after like leaving their life behind in Saipan was um you know really heartbreaking and I don't know I I just thought that article really um mm -hmm. you know and really touched on the feelings of I don't know it was just emotional for me and it was yeah article. <laughs> yeah that makes me really happy to hear that they published that because the last time we read anything in Harper's, it was when they published that letter about cancel culture and, and <laughs> yeah, and Amy and I went through their archive to be like, when's the last time they did a climate story? And it was freaking December. So <laughs> I'm thrilled to see them turn their attention back to that. Um, yeah, um, it, it's also, um, I saw you tweet recently that, you know, you just voted. Um, and you talked about like all of the people in, you know, the global south who may or may not get to vote. I mean, Mariana Islands, they do get to vote, um, but they don't get I don't think they get electoral college representation, do they? Um, so so for yeah, I, I talked about how in the U.S. the U.S. territories, which is the Northern Mariana Islands, Guam, uh, U.S. Virgin Islands, Puerto Rico, and American Samoa, who can't mm -hmm. vote. So the U.S. the U.S. Census Bureau estimates that they have that's about four million Americans because anyone born mm -hmm. in the, in those islands are U.S. citizens, but you know they lack constitution the constitutional right to vote. And the messed up part is that they can serve in the military, and so mm -hmm. you know having you know they can serve in the military, serve for their country but they can't even vote for their commander in chief, it, it, which mm. is, um, I guess, insane to me. And, you know, I think I, a lot of, you know, a lot of people sort of ask like, and, and there's this sort of movement to, and it's also an environmental justice movement to demilitarize the, um, the Marianas and mm -hmm. especially in Guam um, and sort of gaining that um, independent status. But a lot of people sort of ask like, if the uh, if Saipan or the Marianas or Guam were its own, you know, independent country, would it have been able to finance its own recovery? But you know, the true sort of the hard truth is that it, I, I don't think it would have financed its own recovery without FEMA um, FEMA assistance. I, I guess that's the hard truth. And you know, we have we have right now we have a president and an administration that's currently rolling back 
uh, environmental regulations that are supposed to be addressing climate change that's that's facing these U.S. territories and small island nations. Um, but yeah, it's it's hard, and it's you know on top of that, the military is expanding in those islands as well, and they're sort of part of the problem when it comes to releasing greenhouse gas emissions and exacerbating right. um, climate change. Yeah. So uh, another. Um disaster I wanted to shine a light on that really drove me crazy was Cyclone Amphan, uh, which battered Bangladesh and India um, and was just an extraordinarily strong and dangerous storm um, in a place that was uh, the Sun Sundarbans, which are rapidly, rapidly sinking um, in India. If you've read Amitabh Ghosh's uh, Gun Island novel, it's all about climate change, um, is set there. Um, and, um, yeah, so there was this piece that came out shortly after the storm called, uh, Cyclone Amphan, Victims Feel Abandoned by the International Community. Um, it was published in a German outlet, um, this past May. So this, it, the journalist basically just quoted this 19-year-old student who goes by SM Shaheen Alam. And he says, cyclones don't scare me anymore. What scares me is that we're dying slowly because of climate change. All our farmlands and shrimp enclosures have been submerged once again. It means we won't be able to, cu to cultivate anything in the coming months. We have to rely on support from non-governmental organizations. Sometimes I feel that the international community has also abandoned us. They have left us to die slowly. The West is largely responsible for global warming, which has resulted in higher sea levels. We are the ones who have to suffer because of it. Still, we don't see any international initiative for our protection. Yeah. <laughs> True. I really, I, I kind of am surprised that the conversation around climate reparations mm -hmm. hasn't reemerged. Like, this is something that came up maybe, well, actually, when the the guy who um, held the first underwater cabinet meeting yeah. in the Maldives yeah. like he was a big proponent of that mm -hmm. um so was Evo Morales in in Bolivia this was you know like a thing at, at the Copenhagen talks yeah even. the Copenhagen uh UN conference that was like a predecessor to the Paris Agreement 2009 anyway yeah I feel like there was a big kind of there's a lot of momentum then mm -hmm. around that idea and it just sort of like petered out yeah um i have theories it seems well past time for that to come back yeah yeah but the thing you notice that the people that you named as being like really strong proponents of reparations they've all been they've all been ousted yeah, yeah they've been true. deposed so there was yeah. this wave of authoritarianism that kind of took their place um, like true. the, the guy yeah. in the Maldives was like replaced by a military coup that was like, you don't need climate action. You need development. Um, right. Yeah. And so then you, right. and, and it's just happening all over the place. It would make sense for it to come back, but authoritarianism seems to be taking its place instead. And yeah, yeah, it's, it's just, um, it's terrifying, honestly. Um, and all yeah. of this is turning into this big wave of climate migration that um, right. up until super recently, people weren't even calling it climate migration. I know. I know. Well, and that really plays into all the authoritarianism, too, right? It's this crazy um, rise of anti-immigration sentiment and 
eco-fascism and all of that. Um, yeah. Yeah. And something that you were talking about, Rachel, was about Indonesia moving its capital. Yeah. Um, it was, I guess, summer of 2019 when the in- Indonesian president, Joko Widodo, I just searched it up, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> announced that, you know, the capital city it will be relocated to the island of Borneo instead of Jakarta um, because but I don't think he explicitly said it was it, it, I don't think he explicitly you know acknowledged that it was because of the climate crisis but um, it is because of you know it is sinking and people have been calling it a sinking city and also due to its overpopulation and industry industrial activity and sort of things like that and just overall um, bad air quality and water pollution that's been, um, I guess, plaguing the city's residents. Um, so that's, yeah, it's, it's, it's some form of managed retreat that we're seeing. Yeah. That's interesting though, too, because I do feel like the, um, the whole managed retreat thing just terrifies me because I feel like it's not being, it's not really being planned out. And um, to define that term, it's sort of, you know, just moving people out of harm's way when we know that, you know, where they're living is going to be inundated with water in the next few years. Or um, like there's been some talk about, you know, at what point do we stop rebuilding some of these areas in California that keep getting burned down? Yeah. <laughs> you know? But the problem is, I mean, it's it's so it's so much a microcosm of the broader climate conversation, right? Where it's like we don't want to deal with that and plan for it, so we're just going to wait until it's like a crisis situation and then have people like running from their homes. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, (sighs) yeah. It's like humans aren't infrastructure, and we have you know memories that are built into the community and the neighborhood. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, that's the thing is it's like, okay, well, if it's not, well, A, who should be in charge of that? Who is in charge of it? Who's making the decisions about like where people should move? How does that get funded? How is it just, there's so many unanswered questions about it. And I just, um, I don't have a lot of faith in those questions being answered well or equitably. Yeah. (laughs) Oh yeah. That, that equitable measures super important and I think you know we're seeing and I mentioned this I think earlier where I'm I'm writing the story in home buyout programs that's happening you know that happens in Louisiana and Texas Mm -hmm. and we're also seeing it happening in New York and Staten Island of how um, communities are getting uprooted and they're getting paid property values um, pre pre pre-storm property values and sort of the government is buying them out to demolish um, their homes and sort of moving them into higher ground. And that's a form of managed retreat that's better for the government financially, because if, you know, if, if you keep, I guess, if without the home buyout programs, I think the home buyout programs is meant to be sort of um, economically feasible than, than having to, repay them with FEMA assistance over and over again each year whenever another hurricane comes along. Um, I think that's something that most governments of coastal cities are looking into now in the U.S., um, but it's um, a, a program that that's being studied continuously. 
Today's episode is sponsored by Ravensburger Puzzles. I don't think I've ever been so excited about an advertiser in my life because yes, I am a giant puzzle nerd. And Ravensburger makes the best puzzles as anyone who loves puzzles will tell you. I live in a place where we actually get pretty frequent power outages. <laughs> and, and when we do, I like to freak out a puzzle. It's also a fun way to keep my kids off of their screens and do something sort of calm and meditative together. It's very satisfying when you snap that last piece into place. If you are looking for a calm and mindful exercise, I highly recommend checking out Ravensburger. Regardless of your preferences or skill level, you'll find a jigsaw puzzle that suits you perfectly thanks to the wide range of imagery, themes, and piece counts available. You can start small with a, a pretty straightforward puzzle and work your way up to over 40,000 pieces. Are you up for the challenge? Shop Ravensburger on Amazon today. This holiday season, get a gift for yourself too, and keep it simple. I gave myself the gift of a better, more convenient laundry experience. I know, I know, laundry doesn't sound like a gift, but honestly, EarthBreeze just makes it so much easier. Think about how you actually do laundry. You have to work out how much detergent to pour, lift that big plastic jug, hope the goo doesn't get everywhere. It's annoying. But EarthBreeze Eco Sheets look like nothing I've ever seen in the detergent aisle. It's almost, it's like a dryer sheet kind of, but it's the detergent and you throw it in and then that's it. There's no measuring, no nothing. It works in hot and cold. It's also dermatologist tested, hypoallergenic, and free of bleach and dyes. And it fights everyday stains and odors. You get a powerful clean, but you don't have to deal with all that packaging. Right now, my listeners can get started with Earth Breeze and save 40%, 40, 40%. Go to earthbreeze.com slash drilled. That's E-A-R-T-H-B-R-E-E-Z-E dot com slash drilled for 40% off your subscription earthbreeze.com slash drilled. Okay, what do you call a neighborhood where everyone's a writer? Brooklyn. <laughs> ah, I'll accept it, but the answer we were looking for is a writer's block. Oh, God. Mm -hmm. That's a good one. Mm -hmm. that's yeah, good. that's it's a good, good one. <laughs> what dinosaur is a writer's best friend? Rhinoceros. Oh, God. Amy, help. It's not a real dinosaur. I have no idea. I don't know. Oh, my God. This know. is so I... easy. Um, I want to say T-Rex in some capacity. It starts with a I T. It's a thesaurus. Oh, seriously, that, is easy. that was so I easy. That one. Yeah, I don't know if you're gonna get one. No, I have two. I was gonna say I have two thesaurus tabs open. Oh. <laughs> See. <laughs> 
See, you were looking at your best friend in the face. So an another uh, cost of climate change that Americans are often, you know, insulated from is the toll on environmental activists all over the world. Um, and I, this is probably true for like the whole global north or the whole west, really, um, because we have all of these, you know, celebrated, wonderful environmental activists here and we love them. Um, but we don't really get exposed a lot to how difficult it is. <laughs> to be um, an, a, an environmental activist below the equator um, because, and I, I don't know all the reasons for why that is, but um, I have some guesses, but you've done a lot of reporting on this, right? Yeah. Um, for indigenous protesters um, in the Amazon, in, in Australia, in, in New Zealand, in the Philippines, and yeah, just the global South, um, Wait, but, it's dangerous in New Zealand too? It's funny because I think I saw this tweet about, you know, people thinking that New Zealand is perfect, but I think there are some, um, you know, indigenous affairs that aren't being um, recognized yet. Mm. Oh, people definitely think it's, it's like the new Canada. Everybody thinks it's perfect. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think the thing about indigenous communities too is that they're so connected to the land that, I don't even think that climate migration is part of um, the picture or the solution. I don't know. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The two of you have thoughts on that. Yeah. I, I saw an article today about uh, an environmental activist in South Africa um, who was shot dead in her home. Um, and I mean, she was 65 years old and was just courageously, um, protesting this coal mine that was near her home and these men just like entered her house at 6 30 p.m and a 13 year old child saw her shot dead um and it's just like so craven and brazen is that and it's something that like it's a story that i would have to go looking for if i didn't follow african climate activists on twitter i probably wouldn't know that this happened um i've also seen plenty of stories of um I, I believe the Philippines is where the most environmental activists are, are under attack. It's terrifying. And yeah, I, so I wanted to ask you to read from a piece that you did again, <laughs> yet another one, um, called For Indigenous Protesters, Defending the Environment Can Be Fatal. According to a new report, they are not unusual. As police crack down on protests demanding justice and equity in the wake of the police killing of George Floyd in the U.S., it's clear that activism in general comes at a heavy price. Environmental activists specifically, particularly indigenous activists and activists of color, have for years faced high rates of criminalization, physical violence, and even murder for their efforts to protect the planet, according to a comprehensive analysis by researchers. <laughs> I, can't, I can't say that. <laughs> the researchers analyzed nearly 2,800 social <laughs> related to the environment using the Environmental Justice Atlas database, which they created in 2011 to monitor environmental conflicts around the world. The study published in the journal Global Environmental Change. 
found that 20% of environmental defenders faced criminal charges or were imprisoned. 18% were victims of physical violence and 13% were killed between 2011 and 2019. The likelihood of these consequences increased significantly for indigenous environmental defenders. 27% faced criminalization, 25% were victims of physical violence, and 19% were murdered. Good grief. Yeah, it just got chills rereading that again. Even wow. <laughs> yeah. Wow. 19% were murdered? That's just unbelievable. I mean, it's wow. And it's going up. Very troubling. Like, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it's charting upward. Um, and so I think about this as, you know, I guess, I don't know, people call me a climate activist. I think I'm a writer, but I guess I occupy a weird space in between where, like, I'm not necessarily afraid for my life at this level. Um, I mean, we'll see what happens next week. Um, but, yeah, that's a certain mm-hmm. amount of privilege that I try to be aware of it's also scary you know i'm i'm a filipina so i sort of you know know from account of sort of the political landscape and climate in in the philippines of i'm sure you've heard of the extrajudicial killings the war on drugs with um president duterte in the philippines and um that some of his you know personal attacks have been not only towards journalists, but also um, environmental activists who disagree with with the president himself. And mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. sort of justification of, of you know, eliminating um, drugs and declaring war on drugs is to kind of cause this um, unjust killings in the Philippines. And um, yeah, I guess you know, a part of that. There's a lot of, and I think that feeds into why Philippines is such, is so high in that, you know, as the deadliest country for environmental um, defenders. I mean, they've been, uh, they've been labeled by the president himself as quote unquote, the enemy of the state, you know, Mm -hmm. yeah, like social media by, and by a bunch of propaganda. So, yeah, this is kind of like the same playbook as Jair Bolsonaro. Um, and who, what, whoever that woman was who replaced, uh, Eva Morales for that brief period. Wasn't it Janina and, and yes. Yeah. Yeah. They all like immediately declare war on the indigenous folks. And I, I, I'm obsessed with this other podcast called, uh, Behind the Bastards. And they recently did an episode on the school of the Americas, which I, you know, I'd heard of, but didn't know nearly enough about, enough about. Um, And one of the things I found that was interesting was that they took people, you know, from fairly modest means um, and trained them as soldiers, so to speak, more like death squads, um, and turned them very strongly against indigenous people in their country and said, like, they are the reason your country, you know, why you don't have fancy washing machines or things like that back home. Um, And, you know, this is like starting in the 50s, like most people didn't have washing machines. Um, and so, yeah, and the way that that just like gets to build and progress over generations and then it turns into like they, when these right wing um, militia coups happen, that's immediately who they go after because those are the people standing in the way of progress and development, which is really just another word for extraction and devastation. Yeah. 
It's it's dark. It's real dark. It's real dark, yeah. We also wanted to talk about this, um, and, and you kind of mentioned this a little bit before, Mary, that, like, you know, um, sometimes people forget that, that Australia and New Zealand are in the global south, yeah. too. Yeah, they're, like, as far um, south as you can kind of get. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, you know, um, and and yet, you know, I think those countries get more coverage than, than other like browner countries yeah. in the global south I know. Yeah. exactly hmm. yeah what is the difference mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> um yeah. yeah so um but even still you know in as as sort of these fires were barreling down on on sydney um people in the u.s were kind of like eh, yeah you know <laughs> I mean, there was way more coverage in the media, but right. it still seemed like there was a, a general sort of apathy. And at the yeah. exact same time, Indonesia was going through these really horrible floods, which were, you know, another reason yes. why they're moving their capital. Um, but we right. weren't hearing about those floods nearly as much as we were hearing about the fires and I in, in Australia. Um, and at the same time, we weren't hearing nearly enough about that, because if I talked to anybody outside of a climate circle, they were like, oh, those fires are still going on. I forgot. Um, and so I picked out this piece from, uh, it, and also the wild thing is that that was this year. Those fires in yeah, Australia were it? this year. They were like oh December God, into wild. February. Um, wow. They went on for a wow. long time. Um, and so I picked out this piece from um, David Wallace Wells last year. I, it was like December-ish. Um, that mm-hmm. reads really creepy to me now. <laughs> Um, And I'm going to read like a fairly long excerpt, so so bear with me. Um, It's called Global Apathy Toward the Fires in Australia is a Scary Portent for the Future. But the response to what transpired in Australia, again, over a period that has stretched into months, is unfamiliar, to me at least, and not in a good way. Those California fires transfixed the world's attention. But while the ones still burning uncontrolled in Australia have gotten some media attention outside the country, in general, they have been treated as a scary but not apocalyptic local news story. There are all the usual factors, the desire to look away, to avoid contemplating the scariest aspects of contemporary life or what they pretend for our future, the short-sightedness of the media, reluctant to cover climate disasters, at least as climate disasters, and the forces of denial. But two additional explanations suggest themselves to me, neither at all encouraging. The first is the duration of this climate horror has allowed us to normalize it even while it continues to unfold, continues to torture and brutalize and terrify. The campfire in Paradise, California, did almost all of its damage in just four hours, and the short duration may have been as important to our collective horror as the speed. Perhaps, if it had lasted longer, even burning with equal ferocity, we would nevertheless simply have gotten used to it as the white noise catastrophe all around us, as impossible as that may seem to imagine, given the scale of suffering involved. The second explanation is perhaps even more distressing. If you had told me even six months ago that a climate disaster like this one would, take, would strike a place like Australia, I probably would not have expected global wall-to-wall media coverage, but I would have expected a lot more than this. That's not because of high-minded faith in the media or public interest in harrowing stories like these. It's for a much more sin- it's for a more sinister reason, 
For decades now, the U.S. and Western Europe, we have paid much, much more attention to even small-scale suffering by the force of natural disaster when it strikes parts of the wealthy West than we ever muster for those suffering already so dramatically from climate change in Asia, and especially in the global South. So Interesting. there's a few reasons this is creepy to me, and the biggest one is that well, the Australia-type fire struck California this year, and we kind of reacted the exact same way. Yeah. I cannot tell you how many conversations I've had with people that are like, so what's up with these fires? Are they still going? I don't know. I haven't kept track. Because <laughs> it's hard to keep track, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's hard for me, even in the state, it, it, unless it's like... Unless I'm in imminent danger from it, there's so much other shit going on that, like, I'm like, I, you know, I stick my head out my door, and if I smell smoke, then I check the fire report. And if I don't, honestly, I kind of, like, avoid it. Yeah. Which is terrible, but true. Um, Yeah. It's a way to keep your sanity. So are the fires still going? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I know they're rolling through Colorado yeah. right now. Oh, Colorado's just like really, really in it right now. And then, um, I mean, honestly, actually what happened this week in California fire news is that, uh, well, the entire West Coast had crazy wind happening. So some of the fires that had been contained got whipped up again a little bit. And then um, it seems like some of the preventative measures have worked, but that's also totally bonkers crazy it's like a hundred thousand people were evacuated from the bay area preemptively and about a million people had power cut for two days mm. as a because it's like we know this wind is coming you know we have to try to like mitigate all the risk factors and it seems to have done um you know have have helped a bit but like it's just nuts that that's that's what it's gonna take now mm -hmm. um so, yeah. Anyway, is your sister in Oregon too, Rachel, or where is she at? She she goes to uh, UC Berkeley. So oh, Okay. <laughs> so she's right in there. Yeah. So did she get evacuated from Berkeley or, or was she, did she stay? No, she, she stayed, but um, yeah. she sent yeah. me a photo yesterday of um, this tree next to her apartment that fell. Oh, I was like, what happened? Yeah. It was crazy. Not to get off on a whole California fire tangent, but uh, yes, I agree. It's crazy. Yeah. We're not talking about it enough, so you should never apologize for talking about <laughs> it, Amy. Um, yeah. And I wonder, like, if, you know, this thing to relate, it may relate to that notion of, like, hurricane fatigue. It's sort mm -hmm. of like, you know, mm -hmm. aren't we, like, in Tropical Storm Zeta right now? And it's like, yeah. Another tropical storm. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. yeah, no, it's it's um we're getting numb, and and it's yeah. not good. It's not good at all. Um, and honestly, we're not even talking about the numbness nearly as much. Um, yeah, and you know we've just gotten. I didn't expect it to happen this fast. And I know, like I've mm. said this before, but it just seems like we just like are hop skipping and jumping through the climate projections, right? Like. I remember yes. the summer yes. before Australia was on fire, there was this really bad heat wave. And I remember watching the news and it was like freezing cold. It was like the polar vortex here in New York. 
Um, and then seeing the images from Australia of like koalas crawl, crawling into people's swimming pools and, you know, like, I know, right? But then also like snakes getting into toilets, which is way less cute. Um, and just like the road was melting because it was so hot. And remember, I remember in the moment thinking like, oh my God, this is so terrible. This is so terrible. This is the worst thing I've ever seen. And then the very next year, it's on fire. Like the whole continent is on fire. And looking back at the heat wave and being like, I didn't recognize how good that was. Ugh. Yeah. yeah. I feel like that does get into this whole, like, you know, we were just talking about the hurricane. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, are we going to get into like double Greek letters soon? It's crazy. Is that a thing? Oh, yeah. What is, yeah. What's next? <laughs> I don't know. I don't think we've ever gotten there. I, I saw so someone on Twitter suggested we should start naming them after um, oil companies like Tropical Storm Exxon and Chevron <laughs> and ConocoPhillips. And you know what? I am here for it. Bring it yeah. on like Hurricane Texaco. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. deserve it. Totally. Totally. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. But no, yeah, there's and there's been like really low coverage of this year's hurricane season, like even more mm-hmm. so than the fire season. Totally. Uh, yeah. Which there's I feel like even less. Yeah. yeah. I yeah. feel like there we had to have like a big outcry to make people cover to make West East Coast papers cover the West Coast fires. Um, But when it comes to the hurricanes, people have just been like, you know what? Fuck it. We're not we're not going to talk about them. Like, (laughs) we got an election. We got a pandemic. Nobody's going to talk about the hurricanes. Right. Like Mm -hmm. Sally Mm -hmm. was a crazy storm, which just like ramped up super fast. People didn't have time to run. And like I didn't I could find any coverage of that. No, because it, it came right after like a massive coverage of Hurricane Laura. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know. It, I felt like, yeah, I, I guess that feeds in part of hurricane fatigue and that like, mm-hmm. oh, we're just covering another hurricane. And it's, yeah. It's the same sort of path. Um, right. I don't know. Ugh, right. right. And that massive leap in, in names, right? Like we went from Laura to Sally. Sally was on the heels of Laura. How many letters are in between there? That's crazy. Yeah. Right? And we don't even realize that that's happened until you, like, think about it for a second. Um, So, yeah, there's, um, it's your turn to read, Amy. (laughs) (laughs) From this uh, essay in Day Magazine called The Price of Normalizing Climate Disasters. By Heather McTiertoni, who's Mm -hmm. great. Yeah. Um, And a Mississippian. Climate disasters are happening more frequently, but are getting less top-of-the-hour urgent coverage from news and media sources. And it's no wonder, between the daily shock of another Trump administration scandal, racial injustice, and coronavirus pandemic updates, there's scarcely any room for climate incidents of any kind. Disaster philanthropy has shifted in how it addresses major weather events, yet the need for immediate assistance has not. What's even scarier is that many of the same regions are being hit repeatedly, thereby supporting conservatives' case for quote-unquote sacrifice zones across the country. Have we developed a sense of normalcy around these unnatural disasters? Climate complacency is real. So how do we shift this climate complacency? In an era when we see climate disasters increase day after day, year after year, what will it take for us to get the message that we neither have the time, energy, or space to be complacent about these issues. Like any good 12-step program, I believe the first step is recognizing that we have a problem. 
Climate change is happening and being complacent is tantamount to intentionally ignoring the elephant in the room. Yeah, it's hard though cuz I do I like how how um how do we shift that um complacency or that numbness? Like it's I'm like, you know, even even um people like us who are very aware of all these things and know all the drivers and the intersections and things like, you know, we feel numb sometimes. So it's just, it's a lot all at once. I don't know how to get out of that. Feeling. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. How do you cope, Rachel? <laughs> I don't know. I just, I've been, I guess I've been binge watching and, but then it's also like rewatching shows because I know the ending, but I don't know. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. That is a big part of it right now. Right. It's just the, the, it's so, so much unknown all at once. Oh my God. I think you're so right. I've been doing that and I don't think I even realized that's why I'm like watching the office over and over and over and over. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a comfort to knowing what happens and, I think that's something that, you know, makes you forget that you're in a pandemic, mm-hmm. you're in the middle of a climate crisis, you're in the middle of, I don't know, what else. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. right. Right. Yeah. I, I think I kind of limit how many um, stories I'm following, honestly, like, mm-hmm. so that I can stay present in climate. Um, yeah. And it's also like, I try to keep myself centered by focusing not on like what's going to happen in the world around me, but more on who I want to be Um, Mm -hmm. because that shouldn't change depending on what happens in the world around me and trying to get like really clear about how I want to operate in the world and show up in the world, no matter who gets elected. Like, do I want to be someone who's reducing human suffering, adding to it, ignoring it? Like, who do I want to be? And just get super clear about that and stick to it. Um, and let that be my compass, um, and then come with me. Yeah, yeah. Um, so empowering and just. <laughs> I mean, there are definitely still days where I slip down that slide of despair, though. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I feel like what we've talked through here is like all of the different things that are on the ballot and on the line in this election, and this is mm-hmm. our last show before the election. <gasps> Um, we're going to be back here. We're going to be back here, like, processing that shit. Yeah, we're going to be back way, here so. on November 4th because that is my <gasps> birthday and I'm going to need to talk yeah. to somebody while I eat a whole cake by myself. Um, and drink and, and drink a bottle. Yeah. 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 <laughs> a bottle of whiskey. Why should you never date an apostrophe? Um, because it separates people. Mm, what else does it do? <laughs> Causes contractions? Nope, nope. You guys are not. Mom, that was good. That was good. <laughs> no, they're too possessive. <laughs> oh, that's good. That's really good. <laughs> he was trying to give you his. feel like I would be remiss if I let us wrap up this recording without talking about like what are the last things yeah. you would want to say with a platform before this election 
Um, you know, actually, okay, for me, it's um, vote in your local shit. That is so important. Yes, vote for the president, but like the, I don't know, the state and, and down ballot stuff is also really, really, really important right now. Mm-hmm. And it's worth, you know, dealing with a line or the post office or whatever you got to do to do it. Yeah. Um, and also, I would also like to say, uh, stop letting democrats away with their fucking bullshit like i'm so i'm so pissed off at how much they just rolled over on this amy coney barrett thing like Mm -hmm. i mean it's like well we can't be rude you know (laughs) come on yeah what makes you think this is the time for civility yeah exactly there was a really great article um that came out i think someone wrote it on medium and it was sort of like you know Americans need to stop waiting for someone to come up and punch them in the face to realize that they're in like a revolution here. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. They're not going to declare it. Exactly. It's like your rights are being whittled away bit by bit. Like, you know, wake up and and fucking do something. Mm -hmm. What about you, Rachel? I don't know. I I just wanted to add to something that Amy said that, you know, I just wish that the cultural the culture of accountability that momentum won't die. And I think, you know, in 2020, we've, we've sort of fostered that, um, that culture of accountability at the height of the black lives matter movement and just holding people in power accountable for their actions. And I I just wish that, you know, that won't die anytime soon, even after the elections. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But, and, you know, kind of, I guess my last words would be to the same sentiment of voting is that even though I have the privilege of voting, even though I was born and raised in a U.S. territory with, um, you know, as a U.S. citizen, but lacking constitutional rights. And I, mm-hmm. I feel like when you go out to vote, I feel like you should keep, you know, I want you to keep in mind the four million people, the four million Americans who are you know, U.S. citizens who can serve in the military but can't vote. Um, And, you know, that's something that I I really care about and that's something that needs to be highlighted more. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And and on that main, like I say, remember all the people who don't get to vote on this election but whose fate hangs in the balance. Um, And in that, I'm including, you know, prisoners who don't get to vote. I'm including refugees on our borders. I'm including, like, Really, everybody in the world, because there, I wrote about this this week, there is no meaningful path to climate justice without the United States doing a huge part of, of reducing its emissions and the emissions of the rest of the world, because we've stolen a lot of wealth, um, and that wealth is now needed to decarbonize the whole world. Um, and so if we're going to have a compassionate climate future, the United States needs to be doing a lot of that work, um, logically and morally. So think about all of those people who don't get to vote um, and don't worry about what Joe Biden says he's going to do. Worry about what we're going to make him do. So all of this talk about like, I'm not voting for him because he's not going to ban fracking. Amy, just one more time. Remind us why that's. Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, the feds don't ban fracking. The states do. So like there's that. That's there's that. Um, But also. Uh, if he pulls subsidies from fracking, which he said he's going to do, which he said he's going to do, 
coal subsidies from all oil and gas companies that will that will essentially kill fracking and also there's a whole bunch of other you know get rid of the exempt the clean water act exemption for fracking that will also kill fracking um get rid of all of the clean air uh exemptions for fracking that will also go a long way and and then you know yes like i think you know encourage states to to ban permits for new fracking pipelines but like um yeah i just i honestly the fracking thing kind of bums me out because i feel like people don't understand the issue on either side and like both sides get really angry and and, like aggro about it um and yeah there are there's like a very clear path forward to deal with all the damage that fracking has done and it doesn't need to be in the form of of Biden saying, I'm going to have a national ban on fracking, which doesn't even make sense with how our laws right. work. Right. It's also like, Sorry. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm not crunk about Joe Biden. I'm crunk about us. I'm crunk right, about exactly. what we can push forward. Right. Like exactly. I'm, I'm excited. I, like, I believe that the momentum is on our side and we just mm-hmm. need like Joe Biden is a president that we can work with. Um, he is very easily influenced, so that's good for us. Right. Whereas <laughs> Donald Trump represents straight up authoritarianism, right? Like these are yeah. not like, oh, he's not going to ban, fr- he's not promising to ban fracking, so I'm not going to vote for him. Like, I don't need a promise. I just need a dare. Exactly. So, and also, like, we were never in this for perfect. And climate people ought to know that better than anybody else because we lost a grasp of a perfect world a very long time ago. Um, So, and also, like, I've never seen a perfect world. Um, And none of us ever will. So this isn't about perfect. This is about a chance in hell. And if we don't go after that, then I don't know what we thought we were doing here. Yeah, totally. Thanks, Rachel, for making the time. Thank you. Have a good rest of your night. Thank you so much to Rachel for joining us on the show today. You can and should follow her on Twitter at Ramirez. That's R-A-C-H-J-U-R-A-M-I-R-E-Z. And follow her reporting over at Grist and sign up for her newsletter, The Breaking Point. Right. And you can follow us on Twitter at at Real Hot Take. I'm at Mary Hegler and Amy is at at Amy Westervelt. That's right. And like we said earlier, you should subscribe to our newsletter. We're doing great stuff over there. Everything from movie reviews and podcast reviews to original reporting, climate grief essays, previews of essays we're publishing elsewhere. We've got a bunch of stuff there. Yeah, including this week I published an essay with the New Republic, which was just an adaptation of a shorter thing that I had published in Hot Takes. So, yeah, yeah, you could have been on the ground floor of that, people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. It's true. We have a premium version with all of those fun features for as little as $7 a month or $80 a year. Or if you really love us, you can go big and sign up for a founding membership at $210 and get yourself a free t-shirt. And our undying loyalty. Yes. Yes. (laughs) 
Um, but we understand that everyone can't do that right now, and we believe firmly that the climate story should not live behind a paywall. Um, mm-hmm. So we produce a free newsletter, too, that has a roundup of weekly coverage from everywhere, and I'm talking, like, all over the interwebs, um, yes. and a free feature from us and teasers for all of the good stuff in the in the premium newsletter, so you won't be all that left out. That's right. Yeah, it's very handy uh, kind of reading guide to the week's climate coverage, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> that that digest. And we have merchandise now. We've got hats and shirts and mugs, and we're getting even more things. If you've gotten your shirts or your hat or your mug, whatever, please send us pictures. We want to see what they're looking like, and we want to see that stuff out in the wild. Yeah. All right, that's it for this episode. If you've got questions about the general theme, please send them to hottakes at criticalfrequency.org. That's hottakes, plural, at criticalfrequency.org. That's right. And make sure to leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts. If you have a negative review, you can send those to Brian Kahn. He's our hate mail expert. Mm-hmm. Brian.Kahn, that's K-A-H-N, at earther.com. Yep, make sure to do that. All right, we Mm -hmm. will talk to y'all later.